Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. If you have concerns about the global economy, about slowdown, this is the interview of the day. Carl Weinberg with us with High Frequency Economics, our chief economist, with a tour de force note this afternoon. Carl, one of the fundamental things you do is partition the United States and China from everyone else. Why do you do that? Well, the U.S. and China are growing right now, and growth is far from assured in most other places of the world. We're looking at, uh, you know, industrial production, GDP figures uh, that are pretty weak. Consumer spending is good in a number of countries, but uh, overall growth has been disappointing, and forecasts are really not that great if you look at it from coming from the central banks and from the mm. official agencies. Uh, I'm just afraid that uh, the world economy has now done its, its V-shaped recovery. It's now more of a reverse J-shaped recovery. Right. Carl, Jerome Powell is central banker to the world. Will the global slowdown you write about and, frankly, George Saravellis at Deutsche Bank touches on this morning, is that enough to affect Powell's domestic policy? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I think among central bankers right now today, the thing that worries them the most is not inflation, which all of them have clearly said is transient in terms of the things that are going up, just a small number of prices going up for a short period of time. But they're worried that the world is going to fall back into a recession or into a period of subpar growth with the unemployment rate elevated and with both fiscal and monetary policy tapped out. That's a nightmare scenario for central banks. And they're job is to minimize the chances of the worst possible outcome. And that is the worst possible outcome. That's why all central bankers, I believe, are reluctant to talk about tapering or interest rate hikes and say the conversation is way in the future because it is. Cal, this line that comes from you, the winds of global recession are already in the data. A lot of people might be listening to this saying, which data where? Because I'm looking at economic data right now and it looks really strong still. No sign of insufficient demand anywhere. What's the leading indicator for you, Carl, both in terms of the region and the kind of data that you would look for? Yeah, well, a lot of people are looking at PMIs and they're saying, well, the PMIs are up and uh, that means that the economies are booming. But we have to remember that it's the economy that causes the PMI to move and not the PMI to cause the economy to move. When I look at industrial production, I mean, starting from the view that everything that matters in this planet is either grown uh, hammered together or dug out of the ground. All right. Well, well, hammering things together is very important because it drives all of services. And I look, as I do in my global note this morning, at industrial production charts from a dozen countries, and all of them are pointing downward. And all of them are furthermore continuing downward trends that started as long ago as the end of 2017, early 2018. So it makes me think that we're in the process, in a longer term process of industrial decline that has both a as well as a secular component. I'll also point out that industrial production, almost every place I look in the world except for China, is lower now than it was in March of 2008. Well, it reaches a point where we may want to start connecting the dots between what happened in 2008 and what's happening now and viewing it as one longer-term episode, but we still have to fix what's wrong. Carl, let me just sort of summarize as follows then before I get to the big call. Can you just help me understand the time frame for this call? When you talk about this cyclical downturn in the future somewhere, what's the time frame for that? 
Let's just start off with right now with the immediate problem. The immediate problem is that we're lower now on industrial production than we were in February of 2020 before the pandemic, and we're not getting closer back to those levels. We're moving further away from it. That's the immediate problem. The longer term problem is that we're also lower than where we were in 2008. And while we may have briefly rebounded from that, if you connect the dots and run the regression line from 2008 to today, it's pointing downward. And that's a longer term problem that involves infrastructure, investment spending, and demographic trends. Can we talk about the fiscal part of this equation? We were just discussing with our Anne-Marie Hordern down in Washington the debate over the bipartisan infrastructure package and then, of course, the trillions of dollars that this, they're going to attempt to push through through budget reconciliation. How do you factor in that long-term spending? That's a really good question, and we have to separate the long-term issues from the short-term issues. And of course, the only way to get to the long-term is to get through the short-term. But in the longer term, the only way we're going to grow in any meaningful way is if we increase productivity, because our population growth is slowing, and productivity plus population growth gives you long-term economic growth. So I encourage and I support, and I think it's great for the longer-term outlook to get more investment spending in there so that over the next decade, we become richer rather than poorer as our population growth rates and demographics change. In the short run, though, that's not going to help very much. The net impact on GDP in the very short term is going to be relatively small. It will create jobs. It will certainly help the, 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 the environment, and that's probably the most important reason for moving forward quickly with it. But the cyclical problem, the shorter-term problem, has its roots in, I think, credit growth outside the United States, which is flat or down in most of the economies that I'm looking at. That's probably the most important short-term issue, much more important than infrastructure. While we're talking about economies outside the United States, it's Freedom Day in the UK. It should be a happy day. Restrictions are being lifted. Great. Not so great is the resurgence in COVID cases the country is seeing because of the Delta variant. How big do you think the economic pickup there will actually be given some of those remaining fears? Well, you're asking me to look into a crystal ball that's yet to be delivered to <laughs> We've never seen this before, so we don't really know. What we do know is we're getting anecdotal evidence that companies are having trouble operating because of absenteeism in the UK, that 50,000 new cases a day are generating maybe 500,000 absentees from work, and that's mm -hmm. because production chain problems everywhere along the line. And this is stuff we have no basis to evaluate because we've never seen it before. So uh, let's say that I'm worried about it. And at the end of the day, in the very, very short term, the course of the virus, the course of the pandemic is probably the most important right. short term consideration, much more important than <clears throat> tapering or interest rates or anything like that. Carl, very quickly here, what's the timeline of getting U.S. GDP back to something on the edge of normal, say 3% or under 3%. Is that sooner rather than later, or can we extend that out? No, it's later rather than sooner. Look at, look at 2008, when everything uh, seemingly went better after 2009, and it still took us, I don't remember the exact time frame, three, four years to get GDP back to where it was, and to get the unemployment rate back to where it was, it took almost a decade. All right, economies do rebound, and initially they rebound quickly, but then the pace settles down to a slower pace as the harder to reemploy take time to get back to work. So this is, you know, uh, this is a, a marathon, it's not a sprint. And the idea, of course, is to get the unemployment rate back down to where it was before the next hit comes. And uh, mm -hmm. this is what central bankers want to ensure.
Carl, it's good to hear from you, to get that view. Carl Weinberg there of High Frequency Economics, the Chief Economist and Managing Director. Sabrina Rajapas with us with Sock Jen, and this is the interview of the day, folks, uh, on fixed income. I'm sorry, Sabrina, Sabrina, we were going on Chang there. Sabrina, what is what is driving the low yield? Is it the pricing in of global slowdown? Yeah, no, I think that this feels like a classic flight to quality, if you will. Ten yields, at least the last ten to fifteen basis points, have been reacting more to news flow and safe haven bed, risks associated with the Delta variant, you know, lower crude oil prices, um, and, and general concern, if you will, on uh, global economies and not so much on fundamentals. I mean, the data has been sort of back and forth. We got right. you know, somewhat okay retail sales numbers. CPI was above uh, consensus. But the markets, you know, right now is, seems to be more of a safe haven bit than anything But are else. we, is this textbook Fabozzi where what we're really doing is pricing in the input of global disinflation, even if the U.S. booms, even if the U.S. does better, even if strategists call for higher yields, the fact is we impute global disinflation uh, into America and that suppresses yields. Oh, absolutely. I think that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a global uh, you know, bond market, if you will. The ECB has been very dovish. We get some forward guidance uh, again on uh, this week's uh, ECB meeting on Thursday. I think everybody's going to be paying attention to all the details, but they're going to broadly remain dovish and bond yields are at close to negative 40 basis points. I think that lower global bond yields are another factor that's going to keep uh, U.S. bond yields lower. And also the... the uh, the CPI or the inflation differential, if you will, between U.S. Wow. and Europe is quite dramatic. So I think that as long as yeah. inflation remains contained overseas, you're going to see that global bond yields are going to remain low. And John, look at the 10-year yield. For those of you on radio, I mean, it's a decline, John, and then it's a real collapse in yield. 123 right now, very briefly, breaking below that. We're down six basis points on a U.S. 10-year. So, Bandra, you just mentioned something quite important. The inflation dynamics in America is a very, very different story to what we're experiencing right now in Europe and elsewhere. Why is that important for this bond market in the U.S., in the Treasury market? Well, because of the yield differential between Treasuries and bonds and tre Treasuries and JGBs. Because the way the global bond market trades, you can, you can buy assets in other currencies uh, very easily. And as long as Treasuries remain attractive, on a currency-adjusted basis, you're going to see this demand coming from, from foreign investors. That's not exactly what's driving this price action here. This seems to be much more driven by a safe haven bid, if you will, for, for, for treasuries. But broadly speaking, as long as those yield differentials, differentials are wide, you're going to see, uh, uh, you know, at least treasuries are going to struggle to rise. Tre treasury yields, I mean, are going to struggle to rise um, based on fundamentals. Sabadra, so, I don't envy you right now. I think you're in a really tough spot in this bond market. And I just wonder, can you give us some insight into what your conversations with colleagues and clients sound like right now? The level of confusion, the degree of confusion about what is taking place here in this bond market at the moment? Well, there's definitely a decent amount of confusion. Right? This is a completely out of consensus move, if you will, in, in treasuries. Um, you know, the expectation, broadly speaking, was for a gradual rise in yields in the, in the second half. And now, We've basically reversed all the losses we've seen, at least a good portion of it, in the last quarter um, that we saw from the beginning of the year. We saw a dramatic sell-off you know, between January and March, and now it's starting to reverse 
those gains. So, and the flattening of the curve is also not a consensus, uh, you know, view. So, mm-hmm. I think that we're all kind of, uh, you know, trying to figure out where things go from here. I feel like the bond market is in a, in a limbo. Uh, we're waiting on a whole bunch of other uh, factors to to come into play for uh, fundamentals to improve well, and for treasury yields to rise. What other factors, Subhadra? Because if it's not hot inflation, for instance, if, if it's not hawkish commentary coming out of the Federal Reserve, what is the catalyst that makes yields go higher? Uh, I think employment is key. I mean, we're, we, are, we saw some data that I mean, last month's employment print was quite strong. I think that the Fed feels like they've reached uh, their substantial further progress mandate on inflation. Really, the concern now is on the on the employment front. And we need to see anywhere between 500,000 to a million jobs being created for the remainder of the year. And that, I think, is going to be the key for both policy as well as for Treasury yields moving higher. Consensus has totally broken down. Sabatra, it's good to catch up. Sabatra Jappa there. Sosti General, head of U.S. rate strategy. The weather is always good for Barry Ritholtz. He wakes up optimistic each and every day. Barry, the toughest thing to do, and you're going to do this in the real world of real money, you're going to get a call this morning from X number of people that have entrusted you with their money, and they're going to say, go to cash. What do you say? Well, you know, the the secret to dealing with clients who get nervous with a little volatility is having this conversation, not when there's red on the screen, but when they actually first come to us and say, here's what I want to do with my money. Uh, Here's the history of markets. Here's how often we get a 10% drawdown, a 20% drawdown, one, two, 3% moves there are dozens and dozens of those every year. If you go to cash every single time the market twitches 1%, um, you'll never be invested. And that's not what our thought process is. It's not day to day. It's decade to decade. Well, the decade to decade timeline gets across the set of worries that we have this morning. One of them is a consensus call was higher yields. I believe we've gone the other way. <laughs> what happens to consensus when they're wrong? When you say when, their consensus is right most of the time when it comes to market prices. But when it comes to forecasting the economy or the stock market, consensus seems to be wrong most of the time. I can't count how many times I've been told that the bond bull market is over, that yields are done going lower. They'll ne- the 10-year will never drop below 2%. I mean, one and a half percent. I mean, 1.25 percent. You know, the U.S. still is the cleanest shirt in the hamper of dirty laundry. And here we are. You know, we're we're one, two. That that's just astonishing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The people who have been betting against bonds have been on the losing side of that trade for it's almost 40 years. What do you chalk it up to, though? As you say, we're at 121.86 right now. Why? Is that growth concerns? Is that positioning? What What do you make of that? You know, it's hard to look at the U.S. as completely separated from the rest of the world's um, bond markets. And, and we've seen negative yields in Japan for how long and, and negative yields in Europe. That, that black hole, that gravitational pull uh, has been exerted on the U.S., because there is so much capital sloshing around, and it's not just the Fed and QE. Money is looking for a home, and 
If you just want to make sure you're going to get your cash back, return of capital, not return on capital, well, who cares if it's 1%? (laughs) If I put a billion dollars in a bank, there's no guarantee that that bank is going to be there and give me my money back. So this is a way to make sure that money that gets parked for a while is safe. And maybe it has to do with some geopolitics. Maybe it has to do Mm. with some economic concerns. But the biggest issue seems to be just an immense amount of capital, trillions of dollars sloshing around without a good place to hide. Well, you mentioned the Fed and QE there, Barry. How high do you think the risk of is is of a policy mistake? Well, every economic cycle that ends, most contractions are eventually caused by a policy. You know, I don't know if I would call it the mistake sort of implies that if we only get this right, we can avoid recessions. Hey, eventually um, economies get old and vulnerable. And what wasn't a mistake in one year, suddenly the next year uh, becomes a, a problematic. And, and we tend to see bull markets killed, not by old age, but by um, either Fed tightening that's excessive or, or too quick. If you believe the underlying economy is stable and strong and robust, well, sometime next year, we should start moving off of this emergency footing and slowly bring rates up. The question is, where does that become problematic for profits and where does that become an issue for consumers who depend so much on credit? Is it 2%, 3%, 4%? That's anybody's guess. And where people get that wrong, that's your policy mistake. Barry, thanks so much. Barry Ritholtz with us for the important Brian Deese interview as well. Uh, really looking forward to that. Masters of Business on a podcast uh, as well. Dr. Sharfstein, I'm going to cut to the chase. You were at Harvard undergraduate winning the prestigious Hoops Prize. You did Harvard Medical as well. You were at Boston University Hospital. And what you did is you studied Fleming, you studied Salk, you studied Watson and Crick. You also studied Sharfstein. Guess what? There was no social media. How do guys like you and your profession adapt to virology and microbiology in the time of social media? Well, we're seeing just how challenging it is. Um, The misinformation that's out there, the fact that people are hearing again and again and again things that are just flatly untrue about the virus just shows how powerful a force it is. We don't have that kind of partisan divide on penicillin, but we have it on a COVID vaccine in the middle of a pandemic. Well, let's talk about who are the unvaccinated doctor and what policymakers are looking to do about it. Well, um, they're, they're, they're not all the same. Um, I think that there are a couple of different ways of looking at them. One way is, you know, there's still people who um, are open to getting vaccinated. They just want it to be really convenient. And, and I've met them. I've been out vaccinating. I see people who say, you know, this is so easy because I can just walk down from my house. And so I decided to go do it and I'm going to bring in some friends. And you think, you know, that's great. We're here. That's why we're doing this big outreach campaign. There are other people who you really have to spend time with. And I've been talking to people at different workplaces or just uh, friends of friends, call me, talk it over. 
Some of them decide yes um, after a conversation. And then there's some people who really are dug in that they don't want to get vaccinated. And I think that number is uh, a large. I haven't seen recent polls on that. Um, initially, it was in the 10% range, but might be higher now with all this misinformation. And these are the people who they get COVID and they almost die. And they said, well, what do you think about getting a shot now? And they go, I'm not so sure. I hear it might not be safe. You know, and you got to scratch your head and go, like, how could you have that view, you know, given that there are 150 million plus people who've been vaccinated safely and you almost died from COVID. So it, it's really it's really difficult when you get there. Doctor, we have to have a sensible approach to these conversations. And I think you're right to draw a distinction between anti-vaxxers and people who are just hesitant about taking a vaccine. These vaccines are being deployed under emergency youth authorization. I just wonder if full authorization, so to speak, Josh would help things just a little bit, maybe on the margin, if at all. Your thoughts? Um, I do think it would help, and I think it's important for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration now to be really explaining that process. I thought it's been important for a while. What is the difference? What data are they bringing in? What is the timeline? I think there are a lot of people who are confused, and I think just the we'll be really quiet until we tell everyone it's, it's licensed approach isn't good enough for the pandemic. There should be more transparency. And I think that will affect some individuals who are waiting for that, but it will affect businesses a lot, particularly businesses who are um, wondering about requiring vaccination or really pushing vaccination for their employees, but are waiting to see what the FDA does. Doctor, I was catching up with a friend who's down in Florida over the weekend, and she says she knows about a dozen people who are fully vaccinated and yet are sick once again, have tested positive for COVID-19. What do we really know about the protection that vaccinated people have, especially with the surge of the Delta variant and, and others for that matter? Well, there's extraordinary protection against serious illness and death um, from, the, the, from the vaccines. It's not perfect. But it's very, very rare. I'm guessing those 12 people did not get particularly sick. Um, but you can get infected. There's still very good protection against any infection for the Pfizer, Moderna vaccines. It looks like for two shots, you know, uh, people who are fully vaccinated, it's it's in excess of, um, of 90 percent. But uh, that doesn't mean there won't be some people who are exposed and people who are really opened up their lives and are doing things might well um, get a little bit sick or test positive, for example. But in general, if you're vaccinated, it's very, very unlikely that you'll get uh, sick. Joshua Sharfstein, it's good to catch up. An important conversation. And it gets more important by the day in a way that I think some people didn't anticipate. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Vice Dean. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.